when God writes the story, it's filled with surprises. Like forgotten people get chosen. Underdogs win battles. And true friends share the journey. When God writes a story, lessons are learned in the wilderness. Fools are found out. And sometimes, the guilty go free. Making of a giant killer. Welcome everybody to all of our campuses, meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. Glad you made it to church. I also want to welcome those of you watching online. We know this is your connection to our church, so always welcome to you. And I also want to uh, just say happy Mother's Day to all you great moms out there. And we also know that some uh, gals want to be a mom, and that hasn't happened yet for whatever reason. And so we just have you in mind in our prayers as well, that your dream would come true one day. But thanks, Mom, for all you do, moms. <laughs> I guess I have one mom, not moms. Anyway. Today we get a new series called The Making of a Giant Killer from the Life of David. I've been looking forward to this series for six months because David is probably the most well-liked character in the Old Testament. And don't raise any hands on this, but how many of you have the name of David or have a relative or friend by the name of David? We have eight Davids in our family that I know of. And my son is named David as well after this biblical character. Um, and for starters, David was a skilled musician, self-trained at a young age. He was a formidable warrior who slayed this huge giant Goliath as well as thousands more in his career in combat. But for all of his strength and bravado, he was a writer. He was a poet. He, he wrote much of the Psalms that thousands of years later remain the most moving devotional literature ever written on the planet. And he was such a skilled statesman that under his rule, Israel reached its highest economic and political stability in its entire history. He was the central character in the Old Testament. Abraham had 14 chapters devoted to him. Elijah had 10 chapters. But David had has 66 chapters devoted to him alone. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, uh, another 60 times in the New Testament. He's the very last person named in the Bible, in Revelation 22:16, where Jesus says, I am the offspring of David. In the lineage of David, Jesus says, I'm the bright morning star. To this day, the flag that flies over Israel has the star of David on it. He's a remarkable man. But for all of that, he was very human. Most of you know, some of you know, he committed adultery once in his life. He was an accomplice to murder. He neglected to correct his children his own son tried to murder him once. I mean, if you think you have issues in your family, uh, that's a pretty big one right there. He was a very sinful man at times, and yet he still became one of the most remarkable men to ever walk the earth. The question is, how did that happen? I mean, because when we first meet David in 1 Samuel 16, there was nothing about him that, that would clue us that he was going to be something special or great. A couple Tuesday mornings ago, my dog, Blue, ran out to get the newspaper for me like he always does every morning. And I opened the paper. I was surprised to see uh, another front page article uh, on our church. It was well-written, good article. 
But I'm always uncomfortable when that happens because as soon as that happens, the blogs light up. And criticisms start coming. Things like, the senior pastor must have a private jet. No. <laughs> the senior pastor has a 2000 Ford Explorer with three warning lights on at all times. Uh, these articles go on to say, you know, instead of building another campus, why don't they give money to the poor? Actually, we're one of the nation's leaders in serving the poor. What articles like that never tell about or talk about is how unexpected uh, all of this was. People ask me all the time, Bob, how, how, did, how did you become this incredible church at Eagle Brook? And my first response is, I have no idea. And that's true. 26 years ago, I was a grad student. Two kids, no job, had a beat-up car. We needed financial help from our parents to stay afloat. Every day for three, three years, as a grad student, I spent eight hours a day in the basement of the university library, Penn State University Library, going through reel after reel of microfilm, uh, studying for my dissertation. Three years in a library basement. Nobody knew who I was, where I was, what I was doing. I would be down there all alone, and I would look out the basement windows, and there were actually bars on these windows like it was a prison. And I thought, am I ever going to get out of this place? Three solid years in that basement with no leads, no promise. I was 34 years old, no job. I finished out school, graduated. One day I got a call from a small church in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, asking if I would consider being their pastor. I thought, why not? So I came to White Bear. 25 years ago, I inherited a staff of three people. 12 months later, two of them quit which is never a good sign. And I was left with a part-time organist and a youth pastor. Folks, I'm telling you, 25 years ago, nobody knew us. Nobody cared about us. And the 300 people who attended our church at that time had serious doubts about me. Smartest thing I ever did back then was I hired a children's pastor, Luann O'Clubja. She still attends this church with her family. She came in, she started knocking down walls to make room for kids. Honestly, I would come to work on a Monday morning and a wall would be missing. And I said, what happened to that wall? And Luann said, well, we ran out of space. I needed someone to tear it down. And she would just do that without asking permission all the time. And I loved it. Second smartest thing I did was I hired a worship leader, Ken Wanovich, and he brought his guitar and a band with him to lead worship. So Luann was leading kids, and Ken would lead worship, and I taught the best I could, and we started to grow. It was amazing. It was a miracle. From 300 to 400, then a bunch of people left, and then we grew to 500. And one day, I got a call from Lyle Schaller's office, which means nothing to you, but getting a call from Lyle Schaller would be like getting a call from Tom Brokaw, or Megan Kelly, or... Uh, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, you guys know the name Jimmy Fallon, right? So Schaller, Schaller was the, he was the nation's foremost expert on churches. And his office called me, asked if I'd meet with Lyle. Like, what are you, initially I thought it was a prank. Honestly, I thought someone's just, you know, uh, messing with me because why would Lyle Schaller want to talk to me in White Bear? I remember the afternoon, I was waiting in the lobby for, you know, this guy to show up, half expecting no one to show. In drives this Lincoln Continental under our carport. The passenger door opens up, and out walks Lyle Schaller. I couldn't believe Lyle Schaller. 
I'd only seen photos of this guy, read about him in the magazines, but here he was talking to, our, to me, standing in our lobby. He was visiting another church in the area of St. Andrews in Matamedia back then. It was a big church. And the senior pastor, Roger Eigenfeld, recommended that he stop off and have a chat with me. We had a nice talk. And when he left, he called me Roger. Didn't even get my name right. <laughs> nice talking to you, Roger, he said. That's like, oh. I mean, all that to say, 25 years ago, there was nothing going on. <laughs> nothing special, nothing in me or our church. That was great. But as I look back, and as I look at the life of David, there were some signs. There were some seeds that God saw and used to bring about some great things. And I, here's what I believe about every person here. There are some signs or seeds of greatness in every human being. The Bible says you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do great things. That's Ephesians chapter 2. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. The nation Israel was living under uh, a series of judges. The last judge was Samuel, but the people were, you know, demanding, we want a king, we want a king. So uh, God had Samuel anoint King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. But Saul became corrupt, and so God removed his anointing from Saul. And God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, I have appointed a man after my own heart to be the next king. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. When Samuel arrived, he saw Eliab, firstborn son of Jesse, and he thought, surely this is the guy. The Lord's anointed stands before us. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Eliab. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance. Don't we all do that? We all look, ooh, that's a cool looking guy or gal. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at a person's heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel, second born. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen him either. Samuel had Shema pass by, the third born. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen him either. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So Samuel said, are these all the sons you got? He's all you got. So God told Samuel to go anoint a king, and he goes, Samuel goes to the village of Bethlehem, finds the house of Jesse, and Jesse is so proud. Samuel, the ruler over Israel, has come to his home, and he's going to anoint one of his boys to be the next king. Could hardly believe it. And you have to picture this scene. Jesse introduces his firstborn son. And he's always known that Eliab was destined for greatness. I mean, he was the class president. He was the captain of the football team. And this kid walks into the room and he just lights the room up. And Jesse said to Samuel, this is my firstborn, Eliab. And Eliab's Hebrew for you to man. And all the townspeople knew Eliab. Yeah, he the man. And Samuel said, yeah, he the man, all right. But God said, he not the man. He not it. And Eliab gets rejected. 
Somewhat perplexed, Jesse brings out son number two, Abinadad, and he's not the man. And son number three, Shema, and all seven sons get paraded before Samuel, but nobody's the man. And by this time, Samuel's wondering, wondering if he's in the right place. And so he says to Jesse, is this all you got? Are these all your boys? And Jesse, almost as an afterthought, says, well, they're still the youngest. And in that day, the youngest not only meant last born, but lowest in rank. He says, they're still the youngest, but I mean, he's out in the field tending sheep. He's not the man. Can't be. Samuel says, go send for him. We're going to wait. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. And again, picture this scene. Seven older brothers standing there with Samuel waiting for David. And David's this little kid, 12 years old. He smells of sheep. He's got dirt on his face. And and Eliab's thinking, when Samuel sees David, he's going to rethink this. But David walks in, and, and God, by his spirit, says to Samuel, that's the one. I want you to anoint David. And again, you got to picture this. You know, the little boy, David, standing among his older brothers, and the prophet Samuel takes the vial of olive oil and he pours it on David's head and he, and he says to David, he says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And his older brothers are thinking, you got to be kidding me. Now, in those days, birth order was a very big deal. Very big deal. Firstborn got everything. He got the inheritance, family farm, house, car, you name it. But birth order is not important to God. Eight sons, the youngest, David, gets chosen. Ten sons of Abraham, Joseph, the youngest, gets chosen. Ishmael was born first, but God chooses Isaac. What is God saying? It was God saying that all firstborn kids are spoiled brats and he likes middle and younger kids best? Yeah, I think that's part of it. That's what I tell my older brother, John. John, you just got to accept, you know, what God thinks about you. (laughs) But in those days, everything went to the firstborn and, and all the property, money, status. But God says, that is not what makes you great. God says, I don't care if you're firstborn or lastborn or middleborn. I don't care if you're born into money or poverty, born with great looks and raw talent or none of that. God says, we are equally qualified to do great things. And the question of the day is this, what did God see in David that nobody else saw? What were the signs or the seeds of greatness? And the first sign is this, David, David, he had a heart for God. You remember when Eliab walked in the room and Eliab's this stud. And God says, hey, don't consider his appearance. Appearance is nothing. Don't consider his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at things people look at. We look at the outward appearance. God, God looks at a person's heart, and what a heart David had. He's the only person God ever said, here's a man after my own heart. It means that David's heart 
was so attuned to knowing God and worshiping God that God said, this, this guy's got a heart like mine. Look at some of the things that David wrote in the Psalms while sitting under a starlit night, perhaps. David in Psalm 1 writes these words. He says, I'm going to praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders, and I see them in creation every day. This is a great prayer that David prays. I've prayed this prayer many times. God, search me and know my heart. Test me and see if there's anything in me that's offensive to you. And lead me in the everlasting way. And then finally, David shepherded the people, I love this word, with integrity of heart. Integrity means one or single. And David's heart was just sold out. His primary focus in life, his single focus in life was to know and worship God and to let God lead him. And I wonder today, how is your heart? Do you have a heart for God? Is it undivided in your devotion to knowing him and worshiping him? God says, I don't look at a person's appearance or status or birth order or talent. I look at a person's heart. So how's your heart today? What's the focus, number one focus of your heart? And my heart gets divided all the time starts to pursue things, and i got to bring it back and say, God, please lead me. But it's the first thing that made David great. The second thing is, is David spent a lot of time in obscurity, and this is so important for us. I think anybody who wants to achieve a measure of greatness must spend some time in obscurity, waiting, working, learning. I mean, where was David when Samuel came to his father's house, his other brothers were all hanging around. I mean, they were just all there. But David was out in a field, alone, tending sheep. Author John Ortberg says it this way, I think David's greatness was formed during all those, all those years when he was alone with God. It's the only explanation, says Ortberg, for a soul that was so deep he could write words like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and there my God restores my soul. David spent much of his life in obscurity alone every day. And then there's this amazing day when Samuel shows up and he anoints him as the next king. But what does David do? After he's anointed king, David goes right back to tending sheep. He doesn't march into Jerusalem and take over the throne because King Saul's still sitting on it. So for the next, get this, for the next 20 years, David just goes back to work tending sheep every single day. Nobody knows where he is, who he is, what he's doing. 20 more years after being anointed king, he goes back to tend sheep. The word obscurity means unnoticed. But I think, gang, I think, I'm telling you, that's where greatness is born. Any person of greatness has logged some time in obscurity, in being unnoticed. Moses spent 40 years of his life in a desert before he emerged as becoming someone significant. Peter spent most of his adult life just fishing, which... 
Sounds great. But he really didn't become somebody, if you will, until later in life. Jesus himself spent 30 years as a carpenter before we hear much of anything about him. 30 years in obscurity. And in my own life, any breakthrough that I've ever had in life has come after a time of obscurity. Three years in a library basement, five more years in a little country church, just, you know, doing my thing up there. Five years, mainly hunting deer, but five years just leading this little church. First 10 years here in White Bear with a staff of two, completely unknown, unnoticed. And I'm telling you, some of you are right there. I know you are. You feel set aside, maybe in a monotonous work cubicle, and you wonder, when is my day going to come? Maybe you're secluded in a class, a boring class or office, or you're unappreciated raising a couple of kids at home, and your most nagging question is this, when will this ever end? When will my day come? Gang, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, greatness is born right there in obscurity. Not many people know the name Bill McKnight. He started out as a bookkeeper, just watching the books in 1907, then as an accountant. No one knows who the accountant is. Then as a sales manager, then a CEO. Nobody knows what Bill McKnight was doing from 1907 to 1966, but everybody around the world knows the company that he led into prominence, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, or 3M. When Bill was a bookkeeper and sales manager that nobody noticed for 20 years, what was he doing? He was learning how to run a multi-billion dollar business. A couple of years ago, I had a guy come into my office and he said, I want to be where you are, Bob. I want your seat. It was an interesting conversation. I said, well, I said, then I would suggest that maybe you go spend five years in a little country church, three more years in the basement of a university library, and then 10 more years learning how to lead, speak, and work in a church of 300. The question is this that I have for all of you. What is your library basement of obscurity? What is your pasture of obscurity? Is it two kids at home and you wonder when is this going to end? Is it a less than perfect job? Is it, you know, I'm single and I just, it's not happening. I'm telling you, what God is developing in you while you're waiting in obscurity is as important as what God wants to do through you because greatness is born in obscurity. Give yourself 10 years or 20. Okay? That leads to the third thing God saw in David. He attended to the daily details. I mean, all this time that David was tucked away in a, in a pasture some way for 20 years, all this time, what was he doing? He was working. He was writing. He honed his musical skills that eventually landed him in a job in the king's court. He sharpened his military skills by fending off wild animals that were attacking his flock. You know, some people think while they're waiting in obscurity, they can just kind of wait around and wait for something great to happen. That's a big mistake. 
So often people don't understand this principle that 99% of life is dull and routine. 99% of life is just lousy. It's just dull. It's same old, same old. 99% of life is dull and routine, but that 99% eventually shows up in the 1% that everybody sees. Going to class is dull. I hated it. Every minute of it. Writing papers, who wants to do that? Nobody does. It's dull and routine. Rehearsing an instrument is the most boring thing on the planet. Feeding a baby, cleaning the baby, reading to the baby is so dull. 99% of it is dull and routine that eventually, I'm telling you, 20 years later, will show up in the 1% and it all pays off. It all pays off. Five years ago, my son-in-law was in med school on the island of Dominican. Nobody knows where the island of Dominican. You never want to go there, I'm telling you. I was there once. There's just, there's, you don't want to go there. <laughs> People don't know the island because they just avoid it. It's a dangerous, kind of a dirty island place. Awful two years for them. One day, I was sitting at my desk. My phone rang, and, and it was my daughter. And we were just chatting. And I said, how's Nellie? Nellie's her, her, her husband's name. How's Nellie? She says, oh, he's fine. He's fine. He's over at school practicing his cutting. I thought, well, that's creepy. That's really creepy. But then I thought, how else does a doctor learn how to make incisions? He was 4,000 miles away from home, squirreled away in an unknown lab. And I saw that lab. It was just a dump. On some unknown island, making hundreds of cuts on dead bodies so that 10 years later, when somebody comes in for surgery... Because he attended to detail, he'll be able to make the perfect cut when it really counts. 99% dull and routine for the 1% that really matters. David got anointed king, and then he spent the next 20 years, 20 years, tending sheep. But you know what a lot of people do? They get so bored with tending sheep. They get so impatient with tending sheep. So you know what they do? They quit. They quit school. They quit their job. Then they buy a $20,000 Harley and have an affair. It's like, what are you doing? And they end up derailing their future because they got bored. They didn't put in the time. And they short-circuited God's plan. And by the way, David did, did the same thing. I mean, for all of his, his success, he got bored one day. He should have been out leading the battle charge, and he got bored, and he stayed back, and he saw a beautiful woman, not his wife. And he had an affair. And his family paid. And his son paid. And his reputation went down the drain. The best and the brightest people don't do that. They don't. 99, they understand that 99% of life is dull and routine for the 1% that really matters. Jesus said it this way. He said, those who are faithful in the small things, the little details in life, the small things, will be entrusted. This is so cool. They'll be entrusted 
with the bigger things. I'm telling you, if you are the kind of person who is faithful in the details when nobody is watching and nobody is noticing, then I'm telling you, you are the kind of person that God can make great. I love this. Two weeks ago, the Minnesota Vikings picked Mackenzie Alexander at cornerback in the second round. (laughs) Ever since he was 10 years old, Mackenzie Alexander picked oranges in a Florida orange grove to help support his family. Nobody predicted that this undersized kid from Haiti would someday be a second-round pick in the NFL. Do you know about Mackenzie Alexander? You're about to find out. Watch. His greatness was born in an orange grove when nobody was watching. Ten years old. I want to ask all of you, where's your orange grove? Maybe you're in it right now and you're wondering, God, when will this ever end? Is there an end? Greatness is born when you just go to work day after day. You go to school. You raise the kids. And God honors that. He does. Give yourself some time. I know some of you feel stuck right now in an orange grove. I know you do. Some of you are in a hard semester, maybe a thankless job, single parent to a couple of kids. But could it be that what God is building in you while you're waiting is as important as what God wants to do through you? And are you willing to be faithful in the small things for as long as it takes so that God will entrust you with bigger things? The life of David, it's fantastic. Next week is going to be a riot, so I invite you all back. All campuses, let's stand for closing prayer. Be on our way. So the Vikings, we have something to look forward to as Twins fans, right? (laughs) Brutal. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. So many of us are in an orange field right now. And day after day, week after week, we don't see an end. And it's hard and it's frustrating. And we don't see the hope. And we don't see the things that you are building into us that we actually need in order to emerge and become the people you want us to become. So God, I just pray that you give us all patience and courage to hang in there. God, thank you for our moms and thank you for those who want to be a mom. And I pray that you will do miracles in all of our lives as we seek to follow you in our orange groves. We love you and worship you in Jesus' name. Great day.